You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We are glad you found us. My name is Elizabeth Link, and I'm the Associate Pastor for Christian Education. Each week, we climb into the pulpit with a bit of fear and trembling. We hope and pray that what we have to say is true to God's will for the church and may encourage and challenge you on your journey of discipleship. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review if you enjoy. May the Spirit have some word for you and what we have to share. Please pray with me. Resurrected God, send your living word through our locked doors and into our guarded hearts, that we might be witnesses of your grace. And may we believe not just because we see, but because we have been transformed. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from the New Testament Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Hear these words for the church today. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these were written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In John 20, we are given post-resurrection experiences that testify to the new life in Jesus. First, a morning Mary Magdalene encounters an empty tomb, rushing off to tell the other disciples, Peter and the unnamed disciple whom Jesus loved, enter and find the tomb just as she told them. Next, as Mary weeps in her grief and uncertainty, Jesus appears to her and calls her by name. Mary, he says. Teacher, she exclaims. 
That very night, Jesus appears behind locked doors to a group of his disciples. Peace be with you, he says. Thomas was not with them. Tradition would have us calling him Doubting Thomas, but scripture suggests that he is genuine, forthright, even courageous. In chapter 11, Thomas is the one who urged the disciples to go with Jesus to raise Lazarus, even though it might spell their deaths. In chapter 14, when Jesus tells the disciples that he is going on to a place before them, Thomas is the only one who cares enough to interrupt and say, Lord, we do not know the way. And so I wonder whether Thomas's doubt were part of a larger insistence on dealing with reality, on getting things back to normal, on moving on now that the worst had happened. I mean, why isn't Thomas in that locked room with the other disciples on that first Easter night? Thomas, this is my guess anyway, was out there getting on with his life. Sure, he was mourning. The crucifixion broke Thomas's heart. But Thomas is a realist. So perhaps he's out in the real world figuring out what to do next, attempting to get back to normal. We have seen the Lord, his friends tell him. But Thomas had just seen his Lord, too, on Friday, on a cross, in agony and isolation. The joyful, surreal confession of the other disciples must have seemed like wishful thinking to practical Thomas. And then one week later, Jesus appears again. And this time, Thomas is with them. Peace be with you, Jesus says. The lectionary places this Bible story on the calendar every year on the Sunday following Easter. As an associate pastor who gets to preach the Sunday following Easter every year, actually Rachel and I trade every other year, I have preached on this passage a few times. And each time I've always been able to find some gem or some angle to love about this story in a new way. But this year, as I carried this story around in my mind and in my heart in these days since Easter, this passage has felt fuller and heavier than years before. What I've discovered is that this year, what I cherish most about this story is that a wounded and scarred Jesus appears to Thomas. As a good Presbyterian, I am not generally drawn to the more physical parts of Jesus' crucifixion. Yes, I acknowledge them as real. I ponder them on Good Friday. But the crosses in our Presbyterian sanctuaries are empty. The images of a battered Jesus on the cross found in other Christian traditions have never appealed to me. But surprisingly, this year, that's what I love the most. What I love the most is that Jesus appears to Thomas in a body that is scarred and wounded, a body that openly bears its traumatic history, a body that refuses to hide its suffering, its sorrow, its brokenness. These wounds are not healed. These wounds are so raw that Jesus invites Thomas to put his fingers inside them. This is really Jesus. This 
is Jesus from the cross. Jesus who felt pain. Jesus who said, I am with you. I am with you where it hurts. I am with you wherever you are. Blogger Debbie Thomas points out that Christians love a victory story. We value the race won, the mountain scaled, the enemy defeated, the obstacle overcome. We like a story of failure every now and then, but only when they're in retrospect, long after the worst is over. Sin that's surrendered to holiness, that's a Christian story. But sin that clings, challenges that won't ease up, a wound physical, psychological, or relational that won't heal, we cringe. We turn our eyes away. We don't like it. But this year, Jesus' wounded body reminds me that some hurts are for keeps. Some pain, loss, and trauma leave traces that nothing can fully erase. Some wounds remain, even after resurrection. We feel for Thomas, because we know there are days when it is hard to believe. Unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands, and I put my fingers on the marks of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. We can't blame Thomas for wanting to move on, to get back to normal. But when he does see his Lord, the change is less about coming to faith and more about realizing that after the resurrection, reality has changed and there would be no normal to get back to. After all, what is normal when someone has been raised from the dead? What can possibly be the same again? Your work, your sense of purpose, your relationships, your view of the past, present, and future, all of it changed forever in that moment, that morning, in the garden. So when Jesus finally does appear to Thomas and he confesses, my Lord and my God, he is throwing normal out the window and opening himself up to a very different reality than he could have imagined. It is easy for us to focus on the question, how soon until we can get back to normal? But maybe that's not the right question. Perhaps the right question will be, what will we learn? How will we be different? What will we carry with us? Will we take a handshake or a hug for granted? Will we ignore the checkout clerk, the custodian, or the orderly? Will we look past a man or woman in line wearing scrubs without considering the sacrifice they are making, the sacrifice their families are making? Will we forget that we are inextricably bound to each other and dependent on one another? Two weeks ago, the Washington Post shared a short video of a hospital staff in the Menides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. At the time the video was recorded on April the 1st, over 80% of the hospital's 600 patients had tested positive for COVID-19. It was a bleak scene. 
But the nurse, Jeanette Perez, says that she still sings to her patients every day. Lying unconscious in their beds, the intensive care nurse explains, they can still hear you. The hospital staff is all they have. They don't have family around, so we have to be their family, she says. Nurses bustle in the hallways, gowning up and whisking in and out of rooms. They move quickly, purposefully, checking monitors, carefully rearranging limbs and tubing. Nurse Perez explains that she has to keep up the hope that all her patients will get better. I let them know that we're here for them. We talk to them. We encourage them. We are praying for them, she says. Before each shift begins, these hospital workers get together and they pray. Sometimes the group is led by a Jew, other times by a Christian, and still others by a Muslim. Every single morning, she says, we pray together as a team. Sometimes it's hard to see Jesus in the midst of chaos. And sometimes he shows up as clear as day. Barbara Brown Taylor says that we have to be detectives for the divine. It is our job as disciples to search for the extraordinary and the ordinary fabric of everyday existence. Well, our ordinary, everyday existence has changed, is changing. Our normal is not what we could have predicted. Around the world, people are sick and getting sicker. Doctors and nurses carry battle scars on chapped hands, bruises and sores behind their ears and across the bridges of their noses. Children are kept out of school. Passers-by on the sidewalks give us all a wide berth. The elderly and immune compromised are staying indoors and washing off delivered groceries. Jobs are lost. Futures are insecure. Retirement savings have plummeted. Anxieties are rising. But it is into the closed door of our fearful hearts that Jesus shows up. Wounds and all. We may have to be real detectives some days. But the divine shows up in disasters. Peace be with you, Jesus says. In 1527, when the plague descended on Wittenberg, people were fleeing the city. In the midst of all the chaos and madness, Martin Luther wrote of Jesus' gift of peace. He wrote that peace does not deliver us from disaster and death, but Christ gives us peace in the midst of such chaos. God does not promise deliverance from it, but peace within it. Friends, I believe that God is still at work creating, recreating, and sustaining us in ways that we cannot imagine. I see it in the phone calls that our church members make to check in on one another. In Zoom youth group meetings and handwritten notes, I see it in neighbors who check in and hand-sewed masks that get delivered wherever they're needed. Yes, our normal is gone. Maybe for a while. Maybe for a long while. And while we might feel out of place in this strange new normal, Lord, we do not know the way. We can trust that Christ goes before us and beside us. We remember that he told Thomas, that he told his disciples, I am the way.
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. I share with you a poem written by the Irish Franciscan priest, Richard Hendrick, on March the 13th, 2020. Please receive this reading. Yes, there is fear. Yes, there is isolation. Yes, there is panic buying. Yes, there is sickness. Yes, there is even death. But they say that in Wuhan, after so many years of noise, you can hear the birds again. They say that after just a few weeks of quiet, the sky is no longer thick with fumes, but blue and gray and clear. They say that in the streets of Assisi, people are singing to each other across the empty squares, keeping their windows open so that those who are alone may hear the sounds of family around them. They say that a hotel in the west of Ireland is offering free meals and delivery to the housebound. Today, a young woman I know is busy spreading flyers with her number through the neighborhood so that the elders may have someone to call on. Today, churches, synagogues, mosques, and temples are preparing to welcome and shelter the homeless, the sick, the weary. All over the world, people are slowing down and reflecting. All over the world, people are looking at their neighbors in a new way. All over the world, people are waking up to a new reality, to how big we really are to how little control we really have, to what really matters, to love. So we pray and we remember that yes, there is fear, but there does not have to be hate. Yes, there is isolation, but there does not have to be loneliness. Yes, there is panic buying, but there does not have to be meanness. Yes, there is sickness, but there does not have to be disease of the soul. Yes, there is even death, but there can always be a rebirth of love. Wake to the choices you make as to how you live now. Today, breathe. Listen, behind the factory noises of your panic, the birds are singing again. The sky is clearing. The spring is coming. And we are always encompassed by love. Open the windows of your soul. And though you may not be able to touch across the empty square, sing. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.